Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Bible Thumper podcast, where somebody's got to say it. My name is Patrick Hayes, your regular host, and with me tonight is Dr. Jim Stone, and he is going to talk to us about his time over in Ukraine. Dr. Stone, how are you doing this evening? Very good, Patrick. Good, good. So uh, everybody at home doesn't know you like I do. Uh, So could you tell us a little bit about just your medical background, you know, where you came from, uh, what school you went to, what you study, and then we'll move into obviously the exciting work you've been doing in this last year uh, that is pertinent with the times we're living in. Sure. Um, Well, I was born in Greeley, Colorado and raised in Denver. Okay. Uh, So I'm a lifelong resident. So are you a Broncos fan? Everyone's going to want to know. Even when they weren't the Broncos, really. Get out of here. Okay. Um, And um, I went to Thomas Jefferson High School in Denver Mm -hmm. and then graduated from CU. Um, I went to spend about a year and a half as an assistant administrator at Beth Israel Hospital in Denver, um, which is now uh, closed, uh, and then went to medical school. Mm Mm-hmm. When I finished medical school, uh, I did my, well, as I was finishing, I did my last year at Downstate University in New York. Okay. A medical school. And then I did uh, a medical internship and a surgical internship at Baltimore General Hospital in Baltimore. Wow. Um, and then I came to Denver and at that point um, went to St. Joseph's Hospital and did a surgical residency. Okay. Uh, when I completed that residency, um, I was board eligible in general surgery and uh, critical care uh, emergency medicine because I worked every other weekend at Lutheran Hospital in the emergency room Mm -hmm. and vascular surgery. And so at the end of my residency, I took my general surgery boards, managed to squeak through that and took my critical care boards, uh, but remained board eligible in emergency medicine and vascular surgery for my career. Okay. Now, I, I got to ask, forgive me for my ignorance, vascular surgery, that's different from cardiac surgery? It, it's similar to cardiac surgery in the sense that cardiac surgeons often do vascular surgery. In other words, um, a correction of veins and artery problems. Mm-hmm. Um, they get that particular training as well in cardiovascular surgery. Um, but vascular surgery is its own board certification now for general surgeries. So okay. usually it involves uh, two to three years of additional training after general surgery to be boarded in vascular surgery. When did you know in your studies that you wanted to go in that direction? Well, as um, I spent um, all of my high school and college career working in surgical research lab as a surgical research assistant, uh, so by the time I finished college, I pretty well knew, um, number one, the principles of surgery and kind of how it looks and what it feels like. And at the same time, determined that's what I'd like to do. Yeah. <laughs> I loved emergency medicine. So I didn't, uh, I spent my entire residency. Um, I was on call every other weekend for surgery. And then I worked every other weekend in the emergency room. Okay. So double careers sure yeah so you also had some experience in law enforcement and with the military correct tell me how that fit in with medicine i was uh practicing in um, erie pennsylvania at the time i was uh, the assistant director of trauma and ems for the um, tri-state emergency systems which is in erie pennsylvania 
and we covered 11 counties, um, uh, some of which were in the northern part of Pennsylvania, some were in the southwestern uh, part of New York, and the northeastern part of Ohio. And at that particular time, I was doing a lot of um, work for lawyers in testimony and, and evaluation of trauma cases and lawsuits and that kind of stuff. And I became boarded in forensic examination in 97. Um, so you're going to have to tell us what that is. Well, it, it's like <laughs> kind of like the TV show CSI. <laughs> I didn't want to bring that up. <laughs> nobody, nobody wants to say that. that anymore. Okay. Um, and basically, we studied five areas. Um, the first was <clears throat> basic forensic medicine, and then forensic science, which is what kind of CSI does. Mm -hmm. But we also got the principles of investigation and the principles of law enforcement, the principles of uh, judicial decisions, particularly Supreme Court precedents. And then in 2004, I became a certified investigator. So what were, give me an example of what are the cases that, you know, were brought to you that you were involved with? Well, I was... What's I did, the range? Well, it, it was a pretty dramatic range. Okay. Um, homicide very frequently was um, put on my plate because my job was basically to evaluate a lot of times investigations already done or opinions of lawyers uh, sometimes i did amicus briefs for the court because the judge felt that both lawyers were kind of on the point but not maybe a hundred percent on point and i was one of the few physicians who was a certified investigator so i could actually evaluate medical examiners data and and opinions um, and that's what got me started in and I did homicides, I did child abuses, I did um, blue, what we call blue-on-blue -blue crimes, where officers accidentally or semi-intentionally shoot another officer, mostly during training exercises. Wow. Uh, that happens in the military all the time. Mm. And um, a lot of um, second opinions from missing persons, um, and what family thought was not accidental death when in fact the coroner had ruled it accidental death so those kinds of cases pretty diversified mm -hmm. but because i was an investigator as well as a physician it kind of opened the box to what i could do how many physicians have that qualification as an investigator as well at this point in time i don't know at the time i became certified there was only about 120 of us so how far did you go in these investigations geographically? I mean, did they take you quite well, a ways was, away from home? I was contracted with the federal government. Okay. Um, and so my jurisdiction or my <clears throat> encompassing area, uh, I was based out of Denver, and I did the Dakotas, Nebraska, Iowa, uh, and sometimes Wyoming and Minnesota. So when you were doing that, how busy did it keep you? Were you still able to have a medical practice yes, that I, you stayed busy with? I practiced full-time. No uh, kidding. So I did these mostly um, because of electronic age. A lot of the cases were sent to me electronically, and I could deliver a preliminary opinion based on all the records and the interviews and that kind of thing. So you didn't actually have to g get boots on the ground in that location right. at um, first. And so if something came up that was a big question, then I'd mm -hmm. request to interview a, uh, a client or a, 
the um, suspect, mm-hmm. uh, or go and see the actual evidence at times. Um, and probably about 20% of the time I was subpoenaed to testify. Okay. So, so spent, that must have kept you awfully busy. It, as my wife said, it kept me out of the bars and off the street. I bet. Yes. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> um, how long did you do that for? I did that for 16 years. Wow. Um, I retired in 2020 mm-hmm. from full-time practice. Um, I still do some um, second opinions and consults for um, the legal profession. Mm-hmm. And then I got involved with uh, volunteering for... Um, the Ukraine and a couple other uh, projects. Okay. So that's kept me you, alert. Um, are there a lot of physicians that will find themselves doing that once they retire? Uh, they want to continue in the field and they end up doing it on a voluntary basis in different places? I, I think that's true, yes. Okay. Um, and I think it's because once you, you know, I spent 43 years doing medicine and uh, it started I was born and raised on a farm and, and a ranch, and we got up at 5 every morning. And um, and when you're in medical school, you get up at 5 and read and study. When you're a resident, you start rounds at 6 a.m., and mm-hmm. it just goes on and on and on. So it's a hard habit to break once you're retired, Sure, quote, unquote. Yeah. Um, so I think a lot of physicians do find that it's difficult to do nothing. Sure, to just have your workload go down to zero Correct. from such an immense workload for so many years. Yeah, it, it's it's a real adjustment. So uh, the, the reason I wanted to have you on was um, you just recently, in the last year, was it? In a um, year and a half? Uh, yeah, May of 2022. Uh, you went over to Ukraine to serve in, was it an Army field hospital? It was a, uh, yeah, it was a Ukrainian military front hospital and we call it a level two so we were basically um the next aid station after the field and we did uh, basically resuscitation and stabilization and then they got transferred to a tertiary hospital for more definitive care more Mm -hmm. specialized care etc did you have any experience with i don't know if this is the right term combat medicine Combat surgery, yeah. Uh, is I that pre- any different? Well, it is in, in some senses. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, gunshot wounds are gunshot wounds. Correct, Okay, yeah. But I did four years in the Army. Yeah, and, and in you said reserve. you worked in Baltimore, so I know you saw gunshot yeah. wounds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I did four years in the Army. And, okay. Um, I was in medical command, so we did a lot of training and um, kind of planning for... Mm-hmm. combat surgery okay field surgery what point of your career were you in the army i went in in uh 2005 uh-huh. and i finished in the end of 2009 i did four years now that was after you had already been practicing medicine for Correct. a while so where how did that fit in usually that's at the beginning of your career for most folks in medicine well i spent um, 15 years as a consultant for the Air Force uh-huh. and was a medical um, command for a Civil Air Patrol, which is an auxiliary, official auxiliary of the Air Force. And my specialty for the Air Force was uh, trauma and high altitude rescue. Mm-hmm. And when I got out of that, uh, I was in Minneapolis at a medical meeting 
when a major from the army somehow got my name and number or whatever and she came up to me at this meeting and said can i take you to lunch i i've got something that i want you to see mm-hmm. and in the famous words she made me a deal i couldn't refuse which in the army is plus minus sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she said i, I want to put you forward to come into the medical command so i came in as a lieutenant colonel wow yep okay and did my four years how was boot camp it was interesting because was it slimmed down a little bit? Well, I mean, it's different. <laughs> uh, everybody at uh, basic officer training, mm-hmm. which we had to do was two weeks, uh, was at the very lowest rank, a second lieutenant, and the very highest rank, lieutenant colonel. So, <laughs> the range officer, uh, when we had to qualify, and mm-hmm. the army had changed their training at that time. Okay, and because of Afghanistan and Iraq, mm-hmm. the old medical training or basic medical training was you didn't have to march you didn't have to shoot you know okay they changed all of that so mm-hmm. we had to do field navigation we had to do qualifying m9s m16s mm-hmm. etc 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 and so the range officer was in sheer panic because here he had 208 people on the range who are all medical people and mm-hmm. some of which have never shot a weapon <laughs> And, and who was, most mostly outranked him. Yeah. And was, uh, <laughs> so he was in somewhat of a panic state, yes. Okay. So um, you went to Ukraine. How did you get that? Where'd that invitation come from? How did you end up over there? A colleague of mine sent me an email. She, she worked in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she said, listen, I know about this organization that you might be interested in. Um, and they're looking for volunteers. And that was Global Response Medicine. It's a um, 501c3. It was started, I think, around 2017 by two former medics. And as a side story, uh, one of the medics, Mike Reed, uh, was um, recently killed in Bakhmut in an artillery barrage. and he founded this organization, and the whole purpose of this was to provide humanitarian medical aid to austere situations, disasters, war, etc. Mm-hmm. And they were involved uh, on the border running clinics uh, for some of the very ill um, immigrants coming to the border. But they got involved in Ukraine with the department or the Ministry of Health, who um, actually endorsed them to go to the Ukraine. And we were the only organization doing active medical care. The rest of the organizations were doing transport or ambulances or whatever. And so I called them, and they um, go through the paperwork and everything, as we all do. And so they said, yes, we'd love to have you. Um, and so I went over on um, May 31st, mm-hmm. and I returned on June 19th. Okay. So what were you expecting when you were on your way over there? What were you told you were going to be doing? Well, we were uh, we were Team 6, um, and all teams consisted of a surgeon, uh, two Special Forces medics, and two translators. And uh, I was very fortunate. My senior medic, Luke, uh, spent 13 years as a Green Beret medic. Uh, and uh, Sergio spent uh, eight years as a Ranger medic. Okay. Um, 
great guys. And then we had two translators, and they were both uh, Ukrainians, native Ukrainians. But it, the Ukraine had mandated that no males could leave the Ukraine when the war broke out because they needed people and sure. personnel. And uh, they were very good uh, translators and very bright young men. Uh, the one um, had run a computer consulting service in all of Europe, but he couldn't leave anymore, so he shut his business down. Sure. And the other medic or the other translator was, in fact, um, a professional translator and uh, was um, doing some literature and and writing and that kind of thing. So great guys. Yeah. Now I'm assuming you and your two special uh, forces um, medics. paramedics, none of you spoke Russian or Ukrainian. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and the interesting thing about Ukraine is that um, uh, many of them still speak Russian. Yeah. Uh, and so, and most of the translators that I encountered as part of GM, GRM were capable of doing Ukrainian, Russian, and Polish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you said you were a level two unit. So um, where some of the other groups that were over there, they were just dealing with transport to get people From somewhere else. Yeah. But you guys were actually doing um, the initial um, medical assessment and work on people so that they could right. make it to. So you were going through and I mean, I guess what I'm wondering is how busy were you? What were you typically dealing with? Uh, was there a level of triage involved? Um, how close to the front lines were you? We were um, we were ultimately sent to Bakhmut. Mm -hmm. Bakhmut at that point was seven miles from the Russian front, um, and because of the Russian um, military, uh, you could not use helicopters for medevac. There were no medevac capabilities, so everything had to come by ground ambulance. And we were okay. the first center that the victims would come to the the wounded uh and our job was basically to evaluate them uh treat them as necessary to stabilize them mm -hmm. and then they were transferred to a tertiary hospital that had that was in uh about Don, doniva and that was about an hour and a half away and were there only three of you practicing medicine, or were there Ukrainian nurses or medics or anyone else? Well, there, there was a, yeah, this was a um, civilian hospital, community hospital. Okay. When it, the military took it over, mm -hmm. um, there were military surgeons and <clears throat> two civilian surgeons. Um, and it was a hospital that most of us would not recognize. Uh, as a hospital? As an example. There was one x-ray, static x-ray machine for the entire hospital, and it was downstairs on the main floor. So you couldn't do portable x-rays. The ICU couldn't send somebody there. Yeah. The CAT scanner was in another building, so you had to put them in an ambulance and transport them to CAT scan. Um, we had one elevator. The operating rooms were on the third and fourth floor. Uh, the wounded would come in on the first floor. So... <clears throat> About 50% of the time, the power was out. So there was a whole cadre of um, personnel, and all they did was four guys would pick up the litters and, and literally the take stairs. them up three flights of stairs, uh, or four, uh, when we needed to go to the operating room. 
Wow. Um, the plumbing system was archaic, so um, you could not use toilet paper down the toilets. That it didn't. It would ruin the plumbing. Wow. Uh, we had cold water out about, I'd say, thirty percent of the time. Uh, no hot water um, because the boiler system couldn't handle the capacity. Mm-hmm. And their system uh, was very different uh, than our system. In in this country, <clears throat> the first person to see trauma victims is the trauma surgeon and the ER physician. Um, and the trauma surgeon is usually the team captain for the entire process. Um, and in their system, anesthesia does the initial evaluation resuscitation, and they also run the ICU. So anesthesia does those. The surgeon only comes when they need to do something surgically. Okay. As opposed to this country where... And the team is not defined. Um, In our country, we define the team very specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, Bill Schwab at Penn Star did some tremendous papers on interplay and interaction between trauma team members and how the trauma team should function and... And the American College of Surgeons here in this country, in, the, in their criteria for levels of trauma centers, actually designate what the team has to do and should do and look like. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing in the Ukraine. So uh, the resuscitations were somewhat varied, depending on the anesthesiologist in charge. And our job was to support uh, the military and the civilian surgeons. Okay. We're... Were they all, did they all have skills and abilities at a level that you would expect? I think most of them were very well trained. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think their um, capabilities uh, in terms of process and procedure were somewhat not what we would do. For example, mm-hmm. we did one gentleman who had a gunshot wound to his left leg, and his lower leg. Uh, was pretty well mangled and so we had to evaluate the arteries and veins in his lower leg before the orthopods could do anything at all so we went up in the groin we got control of his femoral artery Mm -hmm. um, and then we spent two hours looking for the three arteries in his lower leg now Mm -hmm. we wouldn't do that in this country we would get an image intensifier which is a portable video x-ray machine we would isolate the femoral artery like they did but we would put a catheter in it, inject some dye, and then take images as it goes to the lower leg. And if we saw all three arteries in their full course, no need to find them. Okay. Okay. They that didn't have that technology they, available. They had an image intensifier, mm-hmm. but only the orthopods could use it. And they only had one x-ray tech capable of using it. And she wasn't on duty at the time. So it has some limitations. Sure. And I think that's what brought the next level of this, which I can tell you about. But um, And the other thing is um, most of them had not done um, an advanced trauma life support course, which is what we use in this country for ER docs, trauma surgeons, community surgeons, etc., to give you the basics of the process to take care of trauma. You're not going to learn anything you didn't learn in medical school or residency, but you're going to learn how to organize it, how to use it, and how to process it so you don't miss injuries. That's the okay. clue. And you can take care of life-threatening injuries in a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them have never done ATLS. 
have you ever worked in a scenario like that without electricity, sometimes without water, without elevators, with I mean, have you ever had any experiences like that or was this just being thrown into the fire? Well, I, I did um, when I was first out and I was down in Mexico mm-hmm. and the, some of the villages, you kind of had to make it up as you go. Mm-hmm. And, and this was maybe a step above that. Um, but clearly, um, one of the things that we did is we brought ultrasound machines with us and we did, um, ultrasound evaluation of the abdomen called a fast exam, which is routine in this country pretty much now for every trauma victim. And we did probably 80 of them while we were there because they were just beginning to learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. And one of our medics, Luke, uh, had really brought several ultrasound machines so we taught them virtually every day we did two or three ultrasounds for them okay uh, those kinds of things is where they need support need help yeah um their their medics are different okay their paramedics are not trained at the level of our paramedics mm. so they can do some basic things but they can't do some of the things our medics do are they more like our emts uh, very similar yeah okay so what can you tell us about the war? <laughs> I mean, we obviously, we only see what's on the news. Uh, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of people are less and less trusting of what we see on the news. Um, you know, we want to hear something firsthand. Um, are, what misconceptions are there? What's really going on over there? What did you see? Well, I think the, the first thing that really struck me, uh, and we had a um, GRM lady in, the, in Poland, because we came into Poland, that's where we crossed the border, and she was in charge of everything in Poland for us. And she was in her 40s, uh, bright lady, spoke five languages, um, and she was from the Ukraine, and her mother was still in the Ukraine. And... We had a conversation one night at dinner, and she said to me, uh, I said, how do you think this war is going to go? And she said, oh, we'll win. I said, really? Why do you think that? She says, because we have to. Wow. We don't have any choice. Mm -hmm. And she said, "Um, I think I speak for everybody that I know that nobody's going to give up on this. Because we think the future of Europe... Mm -hmm is going to rest with this war. Wow. If not the future of the world. Um, and so they're very committed. Mm-hmm. Is there concern that Russia will continue moving forward and next is Latvia, yes. Lithuania, Estonia? They're going to keep going. They're, they're, you know, Belarus, what, yeah. you know, yada, 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 and, and further west. That's their concern. Well, especially the, the countries that are not United Nation countries. Sure. Now, Poland. Yeah, if they step foot in Poland, all of a sudden it's different because then we right. have to be involved. Yes. Sure. And we got uh, daily um, intelligence reports at 9 a.m. and 9 p.m. every day. Mm-hmm. And we got them from, when we first got to fo- there, the 82nd Airborne was in Poland, stationed there. Mm-hmm. They do three months. But then they switch out with the 101st Airborne. So the last half of the time we were there, the 101st gave us our uh, intelligence. intelligence. And 
most of the Ukrainians feel that that's somewhat of a, a safety net for them. Um, but they are truly um, dedicated people. I mean, the war, there's nothing we've ever seen that's going to be like it. For instance, when we were there, Bakhmut uh, was literally shut down. Uh, no stores were open. No churches were open. Um, there was occasionally you'd see a few people on the street going to the local store to buy temporary things. Yeah. Milk, bread. Mm-hmm. We made a connection uh, about the third day we were there. There was a little local restaurant about a half a block from the hospital, and it was run by two ladies. One was 85, one was 83. They were sisters. And we asked them through translators, what happens if the Russians invade here? And she says, we're not going to leave. We can't. We're too old. Where would we go? Sure. And we've been here our whole life. We've never been out of Bakhmut in 83 and 85 years. Well, those kinds of people, you know, are are the intelligence of, of the community. And in the last few months, you've read about Bakhmut because it's been a real push for the Russians because they want to use that as a front to get to Kiev, which is the, the capital. You know, and they evacuated. When the war broke out, everybody fled and went over the Polish border. So it was women and children. And then when we started to arrive, they were starting to come back in because the war was kind of remote at that point. It was mostly just on the eastern border, and and that was it. And now that it's really intensified almost everywhere, uh, they evacuated about 70,000 people out of Bakhmut, uh, kind of emergently in the middle of the night. When we were there, uh, there was a 9 p.m. curfew. Nothing could be on the road at 9 p.m. And so we traveled by train uh, to get to Bakhmut, which was a 18-hour ride. <laughs> um, and the train was 1950 vintage. <laughs> Real comfortable. It was. We had a still a, a loud smoking. We, we, <laughs> yeah, we, we had a cabin, quote unquote. Yeah, yeah. So I, I right now the 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 communications I get out of Bakhmut um, is that it's just. We were shelled just about every afternoon, about 3 to 5 p.m., but they were always out in the periphery of the town. One of them hit kind of about five or six blocks away. But the night before we left, uh, we were up. Our, our time was up. Um, a missile hit the building catacorner from the hospital and blew out our windows on our, our dorm level. Um, and that's when the the commanding general of the hospital decided he was going to evacuate patients and doctors and everything. So he started moving personnel out. And by the time we left the next morning, most of the key personnel had been evacuated. Uh, and it, is that hospital still in use today? It's not in use. It, um, it's pretty well desolate, as I understand it right now. Wow. And that's because everybody left. Sure. Um, and the Russians are hitting it very hard. I don't know if they've actually hit the hospital yet. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, you said something before. Uh, you said all transports had to be done by ground. Is that because of the surface-to-air capabilities the Russians had? Yes. So any helicopter transporting patients, with, the concern was it's going to be knocked out of the sky. Yeah. They, they have not paid any attention to the Geneva Convention rules and regs. Um, and so it was very... 
unlikely they could get a helicopter if the Russians had picked them up on radar um, to transport wounded. Okay. Um, since you've been back, you were telling me that there was some plans in the works for um, uh, future missions or just a future plan as to uh, how to be a help in situations like this? Yes. The um, um, Global Response Medicine uh, met on in July with the <clears throat> Ministry of Health and the WHO, the World Health Organization, and several other um, ministers of health and uh, formulated a plan. And the reason what prompted the plan was our experience in Ukraine, one of the complaints the surgeons had at our hospital was they didn't hear ever what happened to their patients once they sent them to the tertiary hospital. Oh, sure. So that was number one. They needed to be collecting data on these patients. And while I was there, I met with the colonel who was the commander of all the military surgeons in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And we had a two-hour conversation. And basically, he said to me, we're having a real problem that when our patients get to Dnipro, which was the tertiary hospital, um, they're getting post-operative bowel obstructions from adhesions. And I said, well, that, that is a significant problem, but in, as you well know, we've had 100 years of data on post-operative adhesions, and nobody has a good solution. Mm-hmm. I can only tell you what we do now, and what we do now is we wash out the abdomen when we're all done uh, and leave some fluid in the abdomen to al- essentially allow the bowel to float so that if it does form adhesions, it's forming adhesions in a non-constrictive, non um, restrictive pattern so that the bowel will continue to work. And he goes, good idea, and we're going to try that. Well, they need data on that kind of stuff to solve those kinds of medical problems. So mm-hmm. one of the discussion points was how do we get data, um, how do we use that data, and how do we take that data and develop standards and protocols and that kind of thing. Well, when they came back, um, the World Health Organization said basically we're going to sponsor a task force from different entities to look at essentially standards and protocols like exist in this country. Mm-hmm. And GRM uh, nominated uh, some of us to, to participate. Well, we found out last week that we're going to be part of the task force um, to look at that. So the first meeting will be in person at WHO headquarters in Geneva, and then we will go from there virtual to generate for them what we think is going to be workable standards and protocols. And much like our system in this country, for trauma, we use um, level one hospitals, level two hospitals, level three, and in some states, level four hospitals. And that would be probably similar to what will come out of the WHO task force. So do you have any desire to go back do you think that you're going to have an opportunity uh i I try to put it this way i I, um because of the intensity of war grm has uh suspended teams oh really going over there okay because it's gotten so bad they can't hot yeah um we we are doing still teaching Mm -hmm. um for different entities over there 
Um, but I think now it's going to amount to helping them develop a, a secondary system to back up the current military surgeons over there. And on top of that, my wife grounded me. So <laughs> She doesn't want you. Yeah. She, <laughs> it's one of those things where you go into it. You know, in the military, we have three zones. You have a hot zone, mm-hmm. which is basically combat zone. Sure. A cool zone, which is basically... Um, not an active combat zone, but potentially could be. Mm-hmm. And finally, a, a quiet zone, which is oh, yeah. far away from everything. Sure. R&R. And so <laughs> uh, I'm 86 from hot zones now. Okay. <laughs> so, and that's because I'm too old, I guess. Yeah. So, sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, have you kept in touch with anyone <laughs> over there? Yes. Um, one of the translators... Um, uh, Bodon, who is a great guy, uh, we we have a secure link that we used over there for emailing and stuff, and so we still email back and forth. Okay, and is he still working as a translator over there? He is, but because of the um, intensity of the combat, sure, now, not with global response he's, medicine. He's doing a lot of uh, translation of um, for public speaking and for mm-hmm. some of the people involved and uh, for television and that kind of thing. Okay. So do you have any sense as to which way the war is going? Do you have any concerns? What are your thoughts as far as what's next? Well, I- and, and we're fine with going into the realm of conjecture. Yeah. Okay. That, cause I, <laughs> I know you're not with the state department or the DOD. Yeah. I, I have to say that up front. Sure. Not like that. Um, I think one of the things that's really interesting, the Ukrainian military established a foreign legion. Mm-hmm. And the foreign legion was non-Ukrainian uh, citizens who wanted to fight on their behalf. Mm. And we met several of those people. Um, Where did they come from? Well, they came from all over. There were about, as best we could tell, probably somewhere around near a thousand U.S. former military fighting. Wow. Um, I met one guy from um, Germany. Mm-hmm. His parents were Ukrainian, but he'd been born and raised in Germany, uh, and he was he was a physician. Yeah. Uh, and he went over there and was actively working. Uh, we talked to another gentleman who um, actually was on the front lines and was from um, New York originally, uh, but had lived in Europe since his adulthood. Okay. And just felt like, boy, this is really uh, something that I want to get involved with and yeah. do my part. And most most of the time what we heard was, you know, we read about all of this military aid that's coming to the Ukrainians. But they told me, you know, we haven't seen any of it on the front at that time. Uh, we need big stuff mm-hmm. to turn the Russians back. And it's been committed. We, we know that. But, but we, we haven't, haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. And that's a problem because when you, when the Germans or the French or the United States sends military supplies over there, it's, it's a delay of two to three to four months before it gets to the military sometimes. Wow. And I think one of the things, if they can have that aid mm-hmm. more rapidly and be able to use it, that it might well be a draw. Now, the Ukrainians, when I went over there, 
the Russian front was seven miles away. Since June, the Russian front has only moved about two to three miles closer to Bakhmut. But they have intensified their artillery barrage and their rockets and some of those things. So they've pretty much leveled the town. Wow. Um, but that's war. And so, yeah. you know, how's it going to end up? Mm-hmm. I don't know. The, 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 the Ukrainians are very intent. Uh, and I think um, the president's wife said it the best for the Ukrainians. She said, they asked her, uh, well, do you think you'll have to mediate some compromise here? And she said, no, because if we give them a section of the Ukraine, our people are still under Russian control. Yep. And that's not acceptable. Well, and, and they were at one time. And nobody wants to go back to that. You know, when the USSR, you know, had a lot of Eastern Europe, nobody wants to go back to those times. Well, and the other thing is the Ukrainians are fighting tremendous amount of spies. Mm. Uh, Spies are everywhere. And and this never made the news. But two days before we left, they found an 18-year-old girl and she was a spy and they arrested her and put her in prison. Wow. Um and so it's it's uh, a very dynamic, movable target. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't think th- they're very committed. The Ukrainian president moves around so that he isn't in one place, mm-hmm. sleeps in different places, and they're they're doing everything they can. But um, it's a it's a t- intense fight. Now the Russians have suffered a lot of casualties. Yeah. And it, one of the reports we were getting at the time we were there was. They are having trouble, uh, the Russian troops are having trouble with ammunition and medical supplies. Okay. It wasn't getting to them from the Russians. So there's a war of attrition on their side as well. As well. And they've lost, um, when the month we left, their casualties were greater than the nine years of casualties they had in Afghanistan. No kidding. And yet they're still pushing on. Do you have any thoughts as to why Ukraine and why now? Well, I think, um, you know, we've all heard it on the news, so it's it's probably not a surprise. But Putin, some of the students of Putin and, and know his history really well, he is convinced he was very disappointed when the Iron Curtain fell and wants to reestablish it. And that, And that's pretty much what everybody thinks right now. I mean, if that's the case, we're talking about, you know, Romania, Czechoslovakia, there's a lot of countries that, yeah. Yugoslavia, um, that were formerly part of the USSR. So, yep. but if he's getting this much resistance with Ukraine, how are you going to well, move just, out from there? Well, that's his challenge, you know, and we've, we've done something to interfere with the oligarchs' ability to contribute to his efforts. Um, but uh, I, I think the... Russian people, from what we can tell, are not all content with what's going on. I would imagine not. Um, I mean, between you and me, I've lived overseas for several years. Mm -hmm. Um, I've visited a lot of countries around the world. 
And I've never met a single person who brought up the idea of, boy, I hope our country invades someplace really soon. Most people want to live at peace, worship God, raise their family, you know, go to work and, and right. you know, and spend time with their family. No one is looking for um, their country to be involved with world domination. It, it, um, th- there was always a there was a joke about how uh, America had never been invaded by a country that had a McDonald's. And the reason that it was kind of funny is because not that there was a McDonald's there, but what McDonald's represents. All of a sudden, a country gets to a point where socioeconomically, they, everybody is at a point in that country where it's like, we really don't want to create ripples. We all have jobs now. We're all making money. Our kids have a future that we never wanted to have. We don't want to ruin that. You know, so um, th- that's what you find is a lot of countries that reach that point, they don't want to invade anyone else because things are better than they've been for, for a really long time. Well, I think it's that, and it's also um, culture is um, multifaceted development. And um, one of the things that um, people, adults of our age, we didn't have electronic age at yeah. the time we were kids and growing up and some of us grew up under um what would now be considered very harsh parenting <laughs> yeah uh but <laughs> uh, those of us that were raised that way are now seeing in our young residents and some of our uh young soldiers um and our one of our daughters was a teacher and she saw it in some of her younger students um, their ability to do whatever is necessary to make something happen is uh, almost non-existent nowadays. And that is the most concerning facet of our culture that people are, are warning us. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look at other cultures, uh, that is absolutely true. You cannot lose what made this country known to the rest of the world uh, and that was a, a a real dedication to helping your neighbor and getting the job done no matter what mm-hmm. and the benefit of the whole was more important than the benefit of the individual yep and that's not what, what we're seeing come up in the next generation yeah and that's what the europeans are looking at and saying you know we don't understand that completely yeah uh, so those are some of the things that i think will will factor into this um and once again our society in this country is kind of moving um one side against the other side and not getting a lot accomplished and that's in the european mind that's a waste of time energy and and money Mm -hmm. uh, because they are unified and fighting a battle that's beyond our belief right now and we're we're not coming together to do what we need to do on this end that makes our country function mm-hmm. uh, and they don't understand that yeah i i heard uh two other things that i wanted to bring up to you see if sure. you knew anything about this um there was a concern about putin's health yeah that's been going around for some time and one of the concerns was uh he might be very ill and he might have a terminal disease. And one of the ideas was, if that's the case, 
is he crazy enough to want to make his mark on history and do something foolish before he departs? Well, I think I think that's uh, a suspicion that sure. probably always arises. Mm-hmm. They, they said the same thing about Hitler and Mussolini. Yeah. And sure, I mean, I can tell you this: CIA analysts were watching Gorbachev, and they yep. could tell what his blood pressure was by watching him give a speech. Yep. You know, and and they watch us; we watch them. I mean, that's the nature of yeah. Uh, but but I think, the, and the answer to that is maybe who knows. <laughs> but the point is. That's not going to solve the problem right now. And the problem right now is how are we going to react to him mm-hmm. if he does anything at all? Sure. And the Ukrainians believe that the future of, of democracy in the world rests on their plight right now. Mm. And are, are we going to recognize that? We're arguing about how much aid we give them. Sure. Not about the principle of what does it represent to support them versus not supporting them. Mm-hmm. Um, and several countries, Sweden for one, is you know going to apply to be a United Nations country because they're all concerned about it. Oh, so other countries want to get on board because depending on what happens in Ukraine, where does Putin go next? And the last thing you would want to do is kick the hornet's nest of a bunch of NATO countries because then there are... Did you find there's much in the way of aid going over to Ukraine from other places? I mean, I know what I've heard about us sending over there, but are there countries closer by that that are... And what typically are they sending over in the way of help? Well, I think uh, first thing we noticed when we got over there is they were doing all their surgeries without EKGs, without cardiac monitoring. In this country, that's unheard of. Sure. (laughs) Um, And so one of the things that GRM did initially when the second team went over is they uh, managed to raise $600,000 to buy EKG monitoring machines for the hospitals that they were working at. And we saw tremendous volumes of donations coming into the hospital. Uh, their whole third floor was lined with boxes, and they would. it took them three weeks to go through all of those boxes and keep the supplies they needed and mm-hmm. send the supplies they didn't need to other facilities wow um so i think they're getting a lot of support um that might change a little bit by now because of the ability to get things in and out of the ukraine sure because of the intensity of the russian front so but the, so far mm-hmm. it's been good they, they've had a lot of support wow are you uh are you glad in the end that you went over there i i am uh i really am glad i i think for two reasons. One is, from a medical standpoint, it really gave me insight into some things um, that we do as a matter of fact and a matter of routine. And in fact, over there was, wait a minute, <laughs> we can't do that. Um, and the second reason is, uh, it was heartwarming to see the commitment that the Ukrainians have to their plight. Mm-hmm. That is, it reminded me of our Revolutionary War. Wow. History, yeah. Um, did you uh, did you wish that you had that experience earlier on in your career? Would it have helped any? Well, I don't know if it would have helped any because I had a, a really uh, very fortunate career um, because I, I I basically went uh, from 
I started off in Grand Junction, Colorado, uh, and was there from 83 to 88. And then I got recruited to go to Colorado Springs and direct the trauma division for Colorado Springs St. Francis Penrose System, which is three hospitals. Uh, from there, I got asked to come up to Swedish and help them become a level one trauma center. Um, and from there, I went to Tri-State Trauma System in Erie, Pennsylvania and uh, helped them really develop a, a system for their EMS and some of the other things we were doing. Uh, and then from there, I got recruited to go to the mail system and um, develop a trauma system and a surgical system in uh, one of their hospitals. Uh, very diversified, very enlightening career. Uh, when I finally, I took a year and a half off and finished my MBA, and when I came back, I started doing um, essentially locums, which is where I would go out to some community critical access hospitals, smaller hospitals, and cover their surgery program, but help them develop surgery, emergency room, ICU work, trauma. Uh, and I did that for seven years for hospitals. I did Iowa, Oklahoma, North Dakota. Um, and that was really enlightening for me because they're each one had a different problem and a different issue, and uh, and and they all had the same intent. They wanted to improve their care, make sure. it better, do better, and uh, just needed help. Now, it sounds like you spent a lot of time in management and in administration. Do most surgeons find themselves doing that, or most people just in the ER or in the uh, you know the OR? And uh, they don't get to do much of that. Well, I think it's an um, avocation that you have to invest in and be willing to do. Mm -hmm. But I would say probably one out of maybe eight surgeons goes to administrative medicine as well. And since I did that all my career, it seemed secondhand. But, sure. Um, um, as an example, um, when you're employed by the hospital to do clinical work and administrative work, Every quarter, you have to do a timesheet for a whole week for um, Medicaid and Medicare. Uh, oh. Submit it to the government to okay. show that you aren't sponging on something, you know. And you have to keep your hours for an entire week. Uh -huh. And in my career, I've never had a timesheet for Medicare uh, with less than 100 hours in a week. So... And you've been doing that how many years? Uh, I did it 37 <laughs> years full-time. Yeah. So what are you doing now in your retirement? Are you enjoying it or are you bored to death? No, I, I'm actually enjoying it. I'm, doing, I'm still doing some consulting for um, the medical part of it, the medical investigation part of it. And I'm, I'm trying to help out GRM with some of this task force stuff sure. and everything. Um, and I've done some work uh, here in Grand Junction um, for birthright, uh, my wife volunteered for them, and I helped them develop a security system. And, mm -hmm. and as you well know, um, those facilities have been the object of some real harsh oh, uh, yeah. uh, treatment by individuals. Uh, and um, I'm also spending some time. I've got a new puppy, and yep. I'm uh, 
Jim, don't you... Training. You you did it backwards. Retirement, your life begins when your last kid leaves the house and the dog dies. You don't don't get a puppy when you're... (laughs) Well, my 75th birthday was in January. Okay. Our youngest daughter said, um, at this rate, you'll live to to be 105. And I said, no, I don't think so. (laughs) So... Yeah. But, okay. You know, my my grandfather used to say, because um, he was, um, he died at ninety nine. Mm-hmm. He was an Italian immigrant. He came to Ellis Island, couldn't speak English. Uh, he was twenty mm-hmm. years old. Um, he farmed for forty four years. Um, my aunt, his daughter, taught him to sign his name finally, and that's all he could do. Wow. Uh, when he was seventy one. He applied for citizenship, and so I would go on weekends. I was 16 years old, and I would go on weekends and read him the citizenship stuff and ask him the questions and everything. He got his citizenship, uh, and he he said, um, the reason I lived so long is because I didn't stop. Yep. And he worked hard every day until he finally retired, and he was 74 when he quit farming. Wow. Yeah. No kidding. And I think that's true. I mean, the minute you stop, yeah, it catches up to you. Sure. I, I've seen that uh, plenty of times. Yeah. I have some friends who are currently scared to retire because they've seen that even with their family. Sure. My one good friend, uh, Bill, he's in his mid to late 70s, and he's a plumber, and he still does not want to retire because his dad dropped dead less than two years after he retired yes oh, you know and yeah. he does he's not sure what to do so he just keeps going and his wife's ready to murder him or leave him you know <laughs> well i think the other thing you learn in medicine mm-hmm. is as scientific and as intense that we are in terms of knowledge and science and all this stuff there's some things you just can't explain yeah and over the years i've had multiple patients who just surprised the hell out of me because they either lived or didn't live when I anticipated the opposite. And, um, and you just learn that people have some inborn abilities and traits that you can't put your finger on. You just don't know. Yeah. Well, Jim, we're at an hour. Um, I really appreciate having you and uh, I appreciate uh, hearing about uh, what's going on over there in Russia and Ukraine. And, um, yeah, if you ever want to come back and chit-chat about something else, we'd certainly love to have you. Um, it doesn't have to be medicine, although I know you're kind of heavy in medicine <laughs> your, your well, whole life. I've got a long list, so sure. we'll, we'll be in good shape. No, okay. thanks for having me. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. You can uh, follow us every Sunday night. All you got to do is Google Bible Thumper Podcast. You can find us on our Facebook page or our YouTube channel. And you can always listen to uh, the podcast on Spotify or Apple or Google Play, uh, wherever you like to get your podcast. And uh, with that, uh, we will catch you next week. Thank you, everyone, for joining us, and have a great week.